0: Thanks for tuning in to Women's Voices. My name is Genevieve Gluck, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Jennifer Lull, who is the founder and president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network, which, according to the mission statement, exists to educate and inform members of the general public, thought leaders, lawmakers, and others on ethical issues in healthcare, biomedical research, and biotechnological advancement. Jennifer Lal has over 25 years of experience as a pediatric critical care nurse, a hospital administrator, and in senior-level nursing management. She has made several documentaries with a particular focus on exploring the exploitation of women by the assisted reproductive technologies industry, including Breeders, a Subclass of Women, Big Fertility, and Exploitation. Her most recent film, titled... Transmission What's the Rush to Assign Gender? questions the ethics of medically transitioning children and reveals some of the harms, both emotional and physical, of childhood sex reassignment procedures and medications. Hi, Jennifer. It's really nice to be talking with you. Uh, I've been following your work on the surrogacy issue for a while now, and you've done some incredible work with bringing awareness to the industry, especially in regards to the medical abuses. Uh, So can you explain your background, your educational background, and your experience in the medical industry, and how you got interested in making movies? Because I know you've made several documentaries about surrogacy.
1: Yeah. Well, hello. It's nice to finally meet you and, and chat with you, because I, like you, have been following your work for quite some time. So nice to finally talk with you. But yeah, um... I worked for 20 years in clinical nursing. So I have a bachelor's degree in nursing and I mostly, most of my career was um, in pediatrics, pediatric critical care. Um, And then sort of the last decade of my career, I went into hospital nursing management at Children's Hospital in Oakland, California, because I'm in the Bay area. And I went back to graduate school and studied bioethics. I've always been interested in sort of the ethics around new emerging technologies, especially when you're dealing with children, there's always, you know, a new treatment. Um, when I was a, a nurse in San Francisco, working at UC, San Francisco, I worked with the surgeon who did the first, like took the baby out of the uterus and did, did the surgery to repair a defect and then plop the baby back in the uterus. So the, the baby had surgery before it was even born. Um, so I was just always fascinated working mostly in university and big academic hospitals. You know, that's where you're sort of pushing the envelope. Um, and of course, in pediatrics, it's a lot of, you know, premature children that are born with lots of issues. And so I just had, you know, was really interested in not only pursuing um an advanced degree, but also an advanced degree that was focused on ethics, you know, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do it. So, but when I was in graduate school, I just, I got sort of engrossed with this whole field because there was just so much biotechnology stuff coming faster than, you know, um, and before with um, this new stuff down the pike. And I live in the backyard of the Silicon Valley. So, you know, just sort of the, what's the next new thing? Um, And I just decided to start a nonprofit because, you know, the nurses were already just educators. Anyway, we're always educating children how to manage their their disease their illness or medication. We're educating parents, you know, how to take care of this child once they leave the hospital um, so they can you know do well at home. So I I launched the Center for Bioethics um, and Culture. It's been 21 years ago now. I'm old. I can't believe it's been that long. Um, Just to be an educational resource to talk about things that were coming Um, and and I sort of landed in the whole space of assisted reproduction. And I think that was one, because I was a pediatric nurse. So I took care of a lot of IVF babies in the ICU Um, because most people don't realize that, you know just because we have this new assisted reproduction it's not without problems to mothers who use IVF and then the babies. Um, And then kind of quickly I realized that we're not a reading culture anymore. (laughs) And that came about because I, I, I pitched a couple of books and I wrote, you know, a pretty exhaustive um, book pitch with sample chapters and tables of contents and, and, you know, you know, publishers were just saying, it's just a really hard time to, you know, sell books and promote books. And, you know, unless you're sort of a, you've got 15 bestsellers under your belt and you just know you have an audience waiting to buy your book, it's probably not going to happen. And one of my colleagues who's down at Stanford, he said, you should make movies, people watch movies. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. So um, Exploitation was my first film. Um, that's a movie about young women in the United States who were university students who saw ads to sell their eggs and did it and had horrible compl- complications. We shot that film in a weekend, you know, two days of shooting interviews. And within four weeks we had the film done, you know, scripted, edited, ready to go. And we won the best documentary award in the California Independent Film Festival that year. And it just sort of set off, you know? It was like, okay, well, so that's sort of how we got into making movies. And people do listen to stories um, if they're interesting, of course, they have to be interesting or compelling. And so since then, you know, we've just sort of kept in that sort of space. So one of our big projects is What's the New Film? And I think we've made nine now. So Transmission that we'll talk about later, you know, in our conversation is our most recent film. And That film was released in June, so three months ago, and we're quickly approaching 80,000 views on YouTube, so it's, it's done really well in a very short period of time, but it's, of course it's a really hot topic. So anyway, I'll stop there, but that's sort of the short version of the last 21 years.
0: So how did your work with assisted reproductive technologies lead towards the transgender issue and the medical abuses going on there? Was it related to your investigative work in surrogacy? I mean, generally, how did you get involved in this topic?
1: Yeah, well, the um, sort of the the way the whole movement in um, third-party conception, third-party conception means you're using either egg donors, sperm donors, and or surrogates, or some combination of all, all of those in some cases. And what happened was the trans movement sort of encroached in my space, So we went went from, you know, assisted reproduction was helping infertile heterosexual couples to then we had men having babies and we know that men can't have babies. Men were having babies because they were buying eggs and renting wombs. Then it went to trans women and trans men having babies through assisted reproduction. Um, And then uh, a big study came out maybe three, four months ago now saying that trans women Want to have uterine transplants so that they can experience pregnancy, labor, delivery, the whole you know woman experience of being pregnant and having a child. Um, and then, uh, you know, just in my research, I found out that children before they medically or surgically transition are offered fertility preservation, so freezing and banking their egg or sperm early before they transition to the opposite sex. And of course, all of my, my writing had been in uterine transplants and artificial wombs and women who are banking and freezing their eggs so that they can keep working at Google and Facebook and not have to stop out of the job market. So all these things I was already writing about and concerned about, all of a sudden was happening in the space of the trans movement. And that's when we decided that we would make a documentary film. And because Um, I was a pediatric nurse and my partner in this film, Callie Fell, is currently a labor and delivery nurse. We focus predominantly on the debate around children and allowing children to medically and surgically transition and the ethics um, around that debate.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you brought that up. Uh, Yeah, essentially, as you're saying, they're expanding the fertility market to people that they are making infertile. So they're medicalizing gender nonconformity and causing infertility in people, which just drives the surrogacy market, don't you think?
1: Yeah. And there, you know, a lot of the, you know, we'll talk about a lot of the drugs are similar, you know, egg donors and surrogates take Lupron, children are put on Lupron, um, you know, fertility drugs, hormones are all part of the whole assisted reproduction and trans package. Now they're different specialty physicians. You know, you're not seeing a reproductive endocrinologist if you're a, a, a child or a, an adult who's wanting to transition um, to the opposite sex and not that you can do that. Uh, you're seeing a different, you know, um, practitioner, if you will. But a lot of the treatments and drugs and stuff are similar. So there, there's, a, and, and then this, the whole ethics around it. You know, one of my concerns as a nurse is what is the proper role of medicine in this space of, assisted reproduction and this, this space of transitioning when we see a lot, of, um, a lot of it's driven by profit and big money, big fertility, big pharma. Um, and that's sort of a corruption of just good medical practice when we're doing things without really good studies and safety and protections and things that were really important in my years of working in hospital nursing. You know, we never really used patients or exploited people Um, for their body parts or or for our checkbook.
0: I want to come back to that point, especially about Lupron. But first, let's talk about your movie, Transmission. What's the rush to assign gender? First of all, as you said, it's doing pretty well on YouTube, with over 80,000 views already, and it came out at the end of June. So that's incredible in the first place that it hasn't been removed... Yet, and so many people have watched it, I think you did a good job of making it a palatable amount of time so viewers can get a wealth of information in there in only about 50 minutes. What was one of the most surprising discoveries for you in the process of making this documentary?
1: Well, there there is a few, but I think, um, and I've said this to other people I've spoken about since the movie came out, because we did interview two detransitioners So for those listening that don't know, that's people that did medically, surgically, you know, try to alter their body um, to the opposite sex and then realize that it didn't solve anything. And those are just really difficult stories, Um, you know, because these are people, the two in particular that we interviewed, you know, just had massive amounts of childhood trauma, you know, abuse, neglect, um, you know, just, You know, things that are just chilling to even imagine that children go through. Um, And so they were, you know, they were just troubled people that thought they got wrapped up in, like Hachi talks about, you know, this ideation, you know, just wrapped up in this being born in the wrong body kind of stuff. And the fact that, you know, the people that in the medical profession that should have been there to protect them, you know, offered these kind of treatments to them as a solution and that this would make things better for them. Um, only for them to realize that it didn't solve anything. And that's just really, was really hard for me to hear because it makes me sort of ashamed of medicine um, and sort of, you know, regret what medicine sort of has become. Um, because these two individuals and many of the other detransitioners who are very out, outspoken and, you know, public on social media, you know, you hear them say over and over again that they, they needed help. Um, but they needed, you know, therapy or counseling or, you know, you know, all kinds of other things. It's not like we're, you know, I recognize that these people have, um, tr- are troubled and have, um, you know, deep um, depression and anxiety and, you know, this sort of disconnect that they don't feel that they're in the right body. I, I, I acknowledge and recognize all that. But there's so many other things that these people should be being offered in our compassion and our sort of therapeutic taking care of them. So that was just really hard. And I, you know, I I I think if I was to make another movie in this space, I'd probably want to focus really heavily on the detransition um, voices and the stories. Because there's some, there's something there that's common in not all of them, but in a lot of them.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, especially about the tragedy of what detransitioners go through. And then on top of that, to be stigmatized, ostracized by the activists, it's really heartbreaking.
1: Just the the hatred that's thrown at them this is cruel. I mean, we had that sixty minutes episode in the U.S. that featured, in, you know, a small segment of the whole entire segment on the trans issue. Did a lot, you know, the opportunities. I think there was five, five, maybe six detransition voices and just the outrage that 60 Minutes would dare even to include those voices. And then our film, we actually included uh, two voices that were very pro um, allowing children. One is a an, uh, psychiatrist and one is a pediatrician that's head of a gender clinic on the East Coast. And we we got some criticism from just some rad feminist friends that thought we had no business including their voices. And I was just, pretty convinced that, you know, in our film, um, that we needed to present those voices or else And it, it, you know, the people that have seen the film that are critical of it is this, it's a propaganda piece. It's, you know, it's, it's a hit piece. Um, they don't acknowledge the fact that we included, you know, people that are in favor of this. Um, but I did think it was important to let the audience, um, hear from all of the stakeholders.
0: I do think it's telling, too, when you have that perspective that's in favor of, for example, giving puberty blockers to children, there was a moment when one of the clinicians faltered when talking about the side effects, which I noticed because it seemed a bit inauthentic, and that so often we're being told that doctors don't know what the side effects will be, but then we're also told that no, this isn't medical experimentation, which is contradictory in my view. So I think it's good that you showed that.
1: Yeah, you know, there's so much that was said that may, didn't make it into the film that ended up on the cutting room floor, which always just makes you so sad as a filmmaker because a lot of good stuff I just couldn't, couldn't make it. We didn't want a film that lasts 27 hours. But, you know, this notion from, from the people that are in support of this they kind of are inconsistent because on one hand, they want to absolutely say there's nothing wrong with these children. This is all spectrum. You know, there's all this gender, you know, diversity, um, that this is evolution and, you know, this is just part of the human evolutionary process and some people are this and some people are that. And then I would sort of kind of try to push on that and say, but then why are we medicalizing? because if this is just diversity, this is evolution just doing what evolution does, our job is to just get out of the way then and let you know mother nature or evolution just do what you know there's nothing because um, so there was this frustration because there would be like there's nothing wrong with these children. And then it's like, well why do they need to go to a clinic and take medication then and and be you know prepared for surgery down the road if they end up that way? So yeah it was it was interesting. so I don't think. But um, on the other hand, I I generally think that physicians and therapists and psychiatrists that are in support of this absolutely believe that this is is what these children need. They're not, you know, overwhelmingly, they're not shysters and snake oil salesmen. You know, they absolutely think that this is the new proven therapy for how to take care of children that are in some kind of a gender distress, gender dysphoric condition.
0: Speaking of that, I wanted to mention John Money. You highlighted a quote of his briefly in your documentary, and I'm bringing this up because, well, I try to bring it up as often as I can, since most people don't seem to be aware of who he is. So just to explain quickly, John Money was a sexologist who, over the course of a couple of decades, he published a lot of literature on his theories about gender schemas, which is where we got the term gender identity. And there was a famous case of a boy named David Reimer, whose circumcision was botched. And John Money tried to raise this boy as a little girl through a series of experiments. And this child grew up, he found out what had happened to him, and he was extremely depressed, and he ended up committing suicide as an adult. So all in all, the whole story is a complete tragedy, a failure on the part of the medical community for him. And you had a quote of his, of John Money's, in Transmission, which I noticed because I've just bought a book of his, actually, Sexual Signatures, which was published in 1975, and in it he describes things that are difficult to repeat. For example, he recommends showing pornography to children to help them understand their gender identity. And you had a quote of his in the film, so I'll let you explain why it is that you chose to include that quote.
1: Yeah, and just if I could say something about that one gentle, young boy, um, it's tragic because his twin brother ended up committing suicide as well. Um, so just the deep, deep trauma and harm that that, um, you know, that experiment that Money thought he could play on this, this little boy, it was just, you know, and, and again, they're similar with the parents in our film because, you know, they're standing there looking and it, Money was at Johns Hopkins. So he wasn't just some, you know, guy that hung out a shingle in some back alley clinic. He was at a prestigious university and, you know, parents go to those kind of physicians and they, they believe them because they think, I don't know what to do. So, um, and so money came up when we were actually doing one of the interviews with one of the um, reproductive endocrinologists who, you know, had done some studying down at John Hopkins. So he actually referenced money. Um, and so at that point, we thought, okay, well, we're going to reference him. And so the quote we put in, and I don't remember it exactly, but he was just basically normalizing you know, consensual sex between underage children and adults. And this, this notion that children, because you know, one of the big issues around allowing children to transition is this is area of consent. And there's no way in my mind that a child can ever consent to having any kind of sexual you know, encounter with an adult. Um, there's just too much unequal, unequalness in the relationships between adult and child. And that, of course, is similar in, you know, decisions about permanent life-altering surgeries and interventions into their sexual bodies and their physical bodies. So, um, you know, the, you know, money, you know, started out just sort of working on, you know, transsexuals and men with fetishes and, and, you know, part of him, he was just trying to normalize all this. Again, there's nothing wrong with these people. And, you know, it's this the same old stuff we find ourselves fighting over and over again. You know, we don't want men in women's prisons. You know, I'm sorry. There's, there's, there's no equalness here. There's no equalness with children and adults is, you know, there's just not no way to level those kind of playing fields. So, and, and, You know, as an educational um, documentary filmmaker, you know we wanted the audience to know sort of the roots of some of this thinking of course it's not exhaustive and that we can, you know, hang all of this at the feet of money, and his horrible experiments and what, what he, you know what he did. But, you know, just to give a little historical perspective of how did we get from, you know, men that just liked in their privacy, wear their women, their wives underwear, you know, to sort of sneaking around, dressing up like women to, you know, you know, it's part of a uh, there's there's some history there.
0: For sure. And I always find it interesting that trans activists repeat this line that gender and sex, they're not the same thing but then advocate altering their sexed bodies to try to match gender stereotypes, but also that a lot of this way of thinking, at least on the medical side, has come from sexology. John Money was a sexologist, and several other pioneers of the surgeries and medical interventions were sexologists, and these are people, mostly men, who were studying sexuality, and I mean it just seems pretty clear that the root of this is coming from a place of a kind of adult male sexuality, and now we have this being expanded to include children. Let's go ahead and talk about Lupron though. This is something I've been really wanting to talk about with you because of its relation to the surrogacy industry. So can you explain what the connection is between surrogacy and the medicalizing of gender non-conforming children, especially in regards to the use of Lupron?
1: Yeah, well, first, let me just say Lupron is a drug that has a really bad history. I mean, there's just been, you know, um, lawsuits and complaints. Um, a, a colleague, friend of mine, I've lost touch with her over the years. She runs a site called the Lupron Victims Hub. She herself, you know, was given Lupron and, and has, lives with lifelong chronic um, health problems. But it was first FDA approved for men in end stage prostate cancer. Um, so. In, in the hopes of shrinking the, so they would put men on, on the, to shrink the prostate down, you know, to, to try to get it either into a manageable size that they can go in and resect it, cut it out, remove it, you know, radiate it, whatever. And then I think several years later, it did get an FDA approval for um, use in endometriosis, but it's, an, um, uh, it's a drug that stops the, um, in women, which is why they put it on egg donors or uh, in egg donors or women surrogates, it sort of, um, I, I use the word, the phrase medical menopause. So it stops ovarian function. So in the egg donor, they want to stop her ovarian um, function, put her, put her into medical menopause because they're trying to synchronize when they want to um, harvest her eggs, so that they can make the embryos that are going into whoever else's body, you know, another woman who needs an egg donor or a gay couple that needs an egg donor. Um, and so after her eggs, her ovaries have gone to sleep um, and they decide it's now time to wake them up again, then they will put her on different hormones to cause her ovaries to produce lots of eggs. In the surrogate, again, it's, it's used to time. They're, you know, they're trying to get the surrogate mother's cycle, her womb, ready for the embryo transfer. Or that she's going to carry as a surrogate mother. So they want to stop her, her cycle, you know, put her ovaries asleep, and then put her on the hormones to start them preparing her uterus to receive this embryo. Children, um, you know, they do use it sometimes in the case of what's called precocious, precocious puberty. So there are cases where children, um, and it's not in their best interest medically to go into puberty at say five or six years of age. Um, So there are medical indications where a child who's just showing really, really early signs of going into puberty, that they will put these children on Lupron for a while and then try to start puberty, you know, at, and again, there's no normal puberty, you know, it's a wide range and we know because of environment and affluence that we're going into puberty much younger now. When I was you know, around, it was like 11, 12, 13, me and my girlfriends were having our period. And now it's sometimes little girls as young as nine and even younger. So sometimes in that case, I'll put children on it just to um, let them be children longer. So they're not a six-year-old that has a beard and an Adam's apple and a deep voice and all the kids are making fun of them or a little girl who's you know, in kindergarten and starting to sprout breasts. Um, uh, but yeah, so they do use it too to block puberty. So in the transmission film, there's this sort of magical thing that has to happen. We have to pause or block puberty, and so these children um, are are put on Lupron to stop them from going into puberty, as if they were a precocious pubescent kind of a child. But what's interesting is most people don't realize, and I take every opportunity I can to say, is that Lupron has what's called a category X rating. So drugs that are approved by FDA are given different kind of categories of um, uh, risks and are they carcinogenic? Um, And Lupron is category X, which means if you get pregnant while you are on Lupron, and that is raging through your system, your chances of having a child with major uh, uh, deformities is very, very high, if not guaranteed. So I always say, you know, it's just, uh, it's out of it's crazy out of our mind that we're putting, you know, egg donors who may be sexually active, even though our egg donors are told don't be sexually active while you're in your egg donation process. But you know, people are not always compliant, um, and the same with surrogate mothers, even though they're told do not have intercourse during this period of time. Um, you know, things happen, you have too much to drink, you know, your husband comes home looking really good, or your boyfriend or whatever. Um, so you're kind of playing with fire when you put um, people, and again, these, these are women who don't need this drug, or children who don't need this drug. Why are we putting people on these drugs that they don't need, that have, you know, you know, some, some like in the case of many on the Lupron Victims Hub, you know, the, a lifelong of chronic problems that are, probably directly resulting from taking a Lupron. It would be a great day if Lupron got pulled off the market. And but, it's not uncommon to use drugs off-label. So even though it's not been approved for this use, we have all kinds of drugs that are used off-label all the time. So I'm not just bashing that it's off-label and you know, it shouldn't be used um, because you know it's just a, a long process. And once a drug has been FDA approved, onto the market for that use, it got its FDA approval. It can then be used in any way a doctor sees fit. Um, and sometimes that lends itself to really good information because they'll put their patient on a particular drug and they'll notice a benefit that they weren't expecting. And it all, oh, oh, by the way, it fixed this or it fixed that. So part of you know being able to use drugs off label isn't always bad, uh, but in this case, it's proven over and over again to be hugely problematic.
0: Yeah, so there are a couple of things I wanted to say about that, which is, first of all, the 2001 lawsuit where the makers of Lupron, Takeda Abbott Pharmaceuticals, were found to be essentially to be bribing doctors. So they were providing kickbacks to doctors for prescribing Lupron. And at the time, this was the biggest medical fraud lawsuit in the U.S., TAP paid out an $875 million settlement. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that I'm not personally convinced that the side effects of Lupron are unknown because of the known side effects experienced by women who have been put on Lupron for issues such as endometriosis, uterine fibroids, and so on. And we do know, for example, that they have chronic pain, brittle bones, early onset menopause, uh, women in their 20s reporting their bones fracturing, their teeth falling out, awful, awful things, you know? And so here we are taking that same drug and giving it to children and saying, we don't know what the side effects will be. Well, I think people are saying that because they're saying we don't know what the side effects will be for children, right? Whereas we do know what the side effects are for women and what the side effects are for men. I find it astonishing that this drug, Lupron, is only given to men when they are in need of cancer treatment, or dying of cancer, or when they are convicted sex offenders, and they don't even give Lupron to just any sex offenders, but the worst, most dangerous, and most recidivist men to chemically castrate them due to its known intense side effects
1: what they're doing to a little boy when they put him on lupon to block his puberty it's a medical castration and you know i've interviewed several egg donors who um stayed in menopause so you know once their whole egg donation cycle was done they never um had periods again they could not go on and achieve a pregnancy um but back to being able to prove it's safe in children or not i mean you know, it's a double-edged sword because I don't want children to have this drug. And in order to prove what it does to children and harms them, we have to have children take it and follow them and, you know, and have big samples and do, you know, big studies on it that can be, you know, good, good peer-reviewed kind of studies. So there's this sort of this conflict. It's like, well, I don't want to say, let's find out if Lupron is harmful to children because I just want to say, let's not do this. It's, it's, it's experimentation. Right now, we do not know what the effects of children are to do this to them, to put them on these drugs. Therefore, we have no business doing it because you know part of informed consent is being informed of the risks. Um, we can inform parents of the risks um, when they're being asked to consent. All we're, they're being told is this is you know the proven standard of care for treating your child and their gender dysphoria. So we have to do this. And parents are like, oh, OK, you're the expert, I'm not you're telling me that this is what my child needs in order to get better? Oh, okay. Um, But I think we have a a huge ethical problem here on our hands um, because I don't want children to take these drugs so we can have the data. They're the guinea pigs. And then we'll say, oops, now we know it's bad.
0: In the case of surrogacy, I know that the FDA hasn't required any long-term follow-up research
1: nor in egg donors either.
0: So is that something they're going to do for these children then require long-term follow-up research?
1: You know, the pushback that I've gotten and I've testified at, you know, Capitol Hill, I've testified at state levels. It's, it's very expensive to set up a whole new regulatory framework. You know, you have to set up like we have, you know, we have tumor banks you know, the track, everybody who's had some kind of a cancer, we have all kinds of breast cancer databases, we have organ transplant and donor, we track organ donors, we track organ recipients. Um, so there'd have to be a whole nother layer. Um, and everybody goes, well, who's going to pay for that? And who's going to manage it? And who's going to oversee it? And, you know, I just kind of go, well, you guys are the federal government figure it out. I mean, who who's over organ tracking, it's the United Network of organ sharing, you know, can't you set up the United Network of you know, exploiting women for their reproductive bodies or exploiting children, you know, figure it out. It's the 21st century, but you get all this sort of, you know, you know, looking at, well, maybe you, you know, everybody wants to punt. Um, the eight, you know, the industry, big fertility and big pharma doesn't want to do the studies. Why would they want to do anything that might, one cost a lot of money? You know, it would have to be a pretty big, Um, you know, sample size, a big major study that track people over 5, 10, 15, 20 years, they don't want to pay for this. They're just happy to, you know, keeping everybody in the dark and just keep, you know, the money coming. Um, so, you know, it just gets back to, you know, that's why I'm so hell bent on just educating people. Please don't sell your eggs if you're thinking about doing it. Please don't ask a young woman to risk her own body because you need her body to help you get the child of your dreams. Please let's stop, you know, experimenting and harming children and doing things that we can't undo. We cannot reverse. We cannot give them back, whatever it is we, we cut off or, or add on, or you know. Um, Listen to the detransitioners. Let's figure out another way to help these children that are clearly in distress. I
0: find it a bit hypocritical, this focus by the trans activists on saying things such as, without these drugs, these children will kill themselves, which is ethically highly questionable, in my opinion, in the first place because it introduces suicidality to children and kids are very suggestible, but at the same time there is an actual real spike in suicide attempts among young girls, which has been directly linked to social media use. And there seems to be this silence about that from trans activists and people promoting puberty blockers. So here we have a hypothetical suicidality situation versus a documented ongoing situation at the moment. And I don't know if you read Abigail Schreier's book Irreversible Damage about the rise of young girls presenting with what's called gender dysphoria, which truly is a kind of a body dysmorphic disorder. And girls are much more susceptible to dysmorphia, much more so than boys. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that
1: several of the parents that we interviewed in transmission talked about how the suicide, in my words, card is played. You know, if you don't do this, your child will commit suicide. And what I found extremely unconscionable is that oftentimes the physician would say this to the parent with the child right there in the room. And as you say, children are very susceptible. You know, those are big people conversations that should not be having, being taken place, in, you know, with minors, you know, in earshot. I think that's, just un- unprofessional, unethical, I'm sure it's not illegal, but it's just really bad um, practice of care. Um, and we don't have that kind of data on, you know, if we don't allow children to transition. This is a new phenomenon. You know, when, when I was, you know, in the heyday of clinical nursing, you know, we had all the, you know, mostly, not always, but mostly young girls that were in hospitalized because they just had severe eating disorders to the point that they required hospitalization, you know, whether it be, you know, anorexia, starving themselves to death or bulimic or binging and purging or something, you know, then it went, to, you know, it went to cutting, um, you know, now it seems to be this sort of trans, you know, I'm born in the wrong body now, I need to be a man or, you know, but it, it, it's, it's definitely an area that needs study and attention because anytime, you um, you're dealing with a suicide potential. There's so many factors. You know, and we and I saw that back to the detransitioners. You know, where were the um, the, the road guards when these people entered into the, you know, the trans space of, of medical that were saying, you know, what's your home life like? You know, what's your school life like? Which what, you know, what's your relationship with your parents? Um, are you on some kind of an autism uh spectrum. Uh, I got an email just the other day from some cr- grandparents who say their five-year-old grandson is now being m- transitioned by his parents to being a little girl and the grandparents say he's, since he's two, he has horrible OCD. You know, we know a lot of these people have OCD. So we play the suicide card, like, oh, you got to do this because we don't look at all these other things. How much time is, is this child spending on the internet? You know, how I mean, you just, you know, in the research of this film, you know, I spent way too much time on Snapchat and on TikTok and on Instagram. I mean, it is just unbelievable. The images that you will see in and the GoFundMe, I mean, just pages and pages and pages of GoFundMe where people are trying to raise money so that they can have have their double mastectomies. Um, you know, and do their transition surgeries and stuff. And these children, um, in the height of what should be their innocent, free, just go out and play days and have fun, are just being bombarded. pornography. I mean, just the stuff that these kids are seeing um, that I think, you know there's so much other things that we need to be talking about versus, oh, if you don't do this, they're going to kill themselves. That's just lazy. That's just a cheap shot.
0: Yeah, the element of social media grooming is tremendous. I don't even know if most people fully understand how bad it really is out there. For example, I was looking at TikTok the other day for this reason and I saw an account belonging to a woman who has half a million followers. And the main topics that she talks about are gender identity, gender dysphoria, and adult sexual fetishes. So if a child uses TikTok, which, by the way, over a third of users are minors, then searches for gender identity or dysphoria, her videos will come up, and then they might go to her channel and see all these videos about asphyxiation,
1: BDSM, and so on. Yeah, and I was shocked because a lot of the physicians who practice this type of surgery, um, they have their channels where they're peddling their wares. And I'm like going, holy, dear Lord, what is, you know? I'm just, yeah. So um, yeah, if, if, if suicides are on the rise, there's a million other reasons that we should be looking at what is causing children to just you know end, end their lives um it's not as i've been born in the wrong body and i really think i am a girl when i was born a boy
0: yeah i completely agree with you and just speaking of this again just briefly i wanted to share another example with you i saw on tiktok which was an account belonging to a 16 year old girl who had medically transitioned and in one of her videos she said that when she was 8 she identified as a lesbian but then began identifying as a boy and started puberty blockers at the age of 11, and by the age of 15, she had undergone a double mastectomy, and her videos are among the first to appear if you search the term top surgery on TikTok, which, by the way, has over 800 million views. You know, there seems to be this kind of idea in gender ideology that if children are uncomfortable in their bodies, it must be somehow natural or innate, uh, which seems bizarre to me. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and the source of this discomfort and where you think it might be coming from.
1: Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know that I can answer that definitively, but we all just know the, you know, the growing up is this awkward and hard at times and some phases of growing up and, and developing from a child you know, into an adolescent, into a young adult, into an adult, you know, there's just all the, you know, acne and awkwardness in your body. And, you know, your body starts doing things and you're like, what's going on here? And, and, you know, and there's all this pressure at school amongst your peers. Um, I was, you know, I'm really tall. And I was one of those people that I was really tall at a very young age. So I didn't sort of like kind of gradually grow to be tall. So I was always the tallest woman class. I was always made fun of. I always had to be the first in the line. I always had the teacher would call on me to do things if it required somebody that could reach up high. Uh, and I just always hated that because the boys hated me because I got to do like really cool things that the boys wanted to do, but then like, we'll, we'll have her do that. So, Um, you know, that's always, you know, that's, I think, been with us since the beginning of time, just sort of that transitioning of our bodies through the different developmental stages. And so do we need to, uh, you know, we've done so much, you know, good work around bullying, you know, wasn't it, um, I don't know, one of the president's wives, maybe it was Michelle, I don't, you know, they all, all the vice, all the first ladies have their sort of Hobby cause one of them was like anti-bullying. I don't remember who, but you know we're re- really aware of just how mean kids can be and how we p- poke fun and make fun of kids that you know aren't whatever we think they should be. Um, yeah, and I I don't know, but I just oh, I, if we could just get kids off screens you know, cause they're being influenced and they're just, you know, we know that you can filter a million ways to make yourself look prettier. And all these girls with their pouty lip, duck lip selfies and make, you know, it's get, you know get kids off their screens and just, you know, back to be just being friends with people that they can be with in person.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a real conversation needs to be had about the impact of technology on body dissociation, body image. Um, I do see that starting to happen more and more these days, so that's a positive development. But in my opinion, the time spent with technology and social media is definitely influential in this gender movement and possibly even in the condition of dysphoria. So what is the main underlying issue for you and by that I mean what is it that you think that's really driving this movement Um, different people have different ideas about what's going on you know in my case I do a lot of work looking at the role of pornography the sort of sexual side of things so to speak so I'm just wondering for you if there's something you see as the fundamental problem here or the issue that you are most dedicated to bringing awareness to
1: yeah, I mean, what really is driving me is um, stopping this from happening to children. You know, that's what, why I made the film. That's why I, um, you know, I'm trying to get everybody in the world to watch the film. Uh, it's, you know, calling to task uh, all, the, uh, all the adults um, to stop doing this to children. And, and finding a way to help children that are, again, oftentimes truly in distress, but finding them the help that they need that does not alter their physical bodies through medicine and through surgeries that they do not need in order to solve their problems and feel better. You know, it's, a, it's, you know, it's calling to task the medical profession to stop doing butchery, to stop chopping off healthy body parts and thinking that that's going to help somebody.
0: And what has been the reaction so far to your film? Have you gotten some comments from
1: parents or from politicians? Um, Yeah. Well, like you said in the intro, the film hasn't been yanked off of YouTube, which on day one, we thought, how long will it stay up before they pull it? So we also actually already have it on Vimeo. We we built a Rumble page. We have the film on Rumble. So the film is on other sites because we thought, you know, immediately we're gonna just get canceled and get the film pulled. So that was a good reaction that we, so far we have not had that. Overwhelmingly, the thousands of comments on the YouTube channel are overwhelmingly positive. Yes, there's some negative, yes, there's some trans activists saying that this is a propaganda film, um, you know, uh, um, so that's out there. It's being translated right now into Hungarian, into Chinese, because we've already been contacted by people in Hungary and people in China that have seen the film. So we're, you know, that's been an, an sort of unexpected outcome. And so we're already thinking that that will probably happen with other countries as word gets out more on the film. Other countries will want to do that. So we have a really friendly favorable, no charge. You guys just translate the script and send us a, a file of the translated script and we'll throw it up in YouTube with the subtitles. Uh, nothing legislatively, but you know, it's a September. So when the film came out in June, all the legislation, you know, all those cycles, the legislative cycles were not open. You know, everybody was out in their districts over the summer, shaking hands and, you know, kissing babies and trying to keep their, their constituents happy. So whether or not we will see some Laws being introduced, particularly here in the United States. Um, whether we're called to testify, whether we're called to screen the film in you know, capitals to legislators, we haven't had that. We have been disappointed that we haven't gotten any good mainstream media press. We didn't think we would, but we still you're still always kind of hopeful that you know the New York Times and the Washington Post <laughs> will want to write about your film. <laughs> Um, but of course, they've sort of um, ignored it. So most of the sort of traditional um, news outlets that have always been reporting on the transing of kids, you know, um, were the few, you know, the sites that ran stories or reviews of the film. We were really happy that um, our, our donor who funded the making of the film wanted it to be free. So we are, are pleased that people can, you know, watch it without having to pay to watch it. Uh, we know that a lot of support groups that um, parent like I think the first day it came out or the next day, I immediately got an email from a parent, a father who's in like a support group of about 50 families in his area that all have children in this space, different stages of this space. And they were just so thank you very much for making this film. Um, And they've organized a screening and showed it to their group and had all their parents see it. They've tried to get it shown in their schools now that schools are back. um, But so far the schools are not allowing the film to be shown there. Um, But yeah, we, uh, we, no complaints. The interesting thing though, because again, it's a controversial film and we had a, we hired a social media team to run our campaign for three months and they're, they're done. We just had our final report with them the other day and we, we um, did a lot of paid advertisement around short clips of the film, and we had well over a million people watch the clips. You know whether they were clips of Hachi, a detransitioner, one of the experts, a mother. You know we had all you know different people: Colin Wright, Megan Murphy. Clips. Uh, and YouTube would not allow us to ever uh, pay, do any paid advertisement, so we were we were shut out from YouTube. They didn't pull the film, but they would not allow us to pay. Um, any advertisement, but people um, overwhelmingly watched, you know, all of whatever the content we we served in front of them. So they didn't like, sometimes you just, a a clip shows up in your feed and you watch it for about a second and you close it down because you're not interested. And it was like 97, 99% of the people that, you know, had something show up in their feed, watched it to the end. The liking and the sharing was almost zero because people don't wanna be outed. So they would watch it, but they didn't want people to know that they liked it. Or, Cause you can watch something and nobody knows you watched it. We, we knew they watched it. We don't know who they are, but we knew people were watching it, but the people who were watching it didn't wanna like and share it. And we know the cost. If you speak out and you're in favor of this film, you, know, you lose your job. You know, you're ostracized at the cocktail parties or in the neighborhood or at the, your kid's school. So you can't be like liking and sharing. Everybody watched this film. So it was really hard to get momentum for people to say, please watch this film. It's the best film. You'll, you, it's really important, whatever. That just, it, it did happen, but not in the proportion to how many people were consuming all of the content. Um, it, you know, A lot of times those kind of are more equal. People were, were like really riveted and like something and they'll tell their friends. But we, we, we can't prove that, but we think it's because the minute you like or share something that's public.
0: Speaking of the backlash, have you received any yourself personally for the issues that you discuss? I mean, surrogacy itself being a controversial issue as well.
1: Yeah, I have my share of haters. I have my share of, you know, trolls and, and people who say horrible things about, you know, I should, you know, one person said I should brush my teeth with a shotgun and one person said somebody should put a bullet through my head, you know, they're just, I think somebody told me to suck a bag of dicks, you know, just really, and of course, they never put their name to it. They're something you know, like Avatar or troll kind of person. Uh, yeah, but you know that I don't really care. I just say I don't care. I am, I'm not worried about I work for myself. Um, I'm, I'm my, my own boss, I'm not going to fire myself. And, you know, I I run a nonprofit. So, so far, the people that support our work financially, you know, or keep supporting our work. So we're still in in business, (laughs) but, you know, people like Megan Murphy, you know, her livelihood was immediately God, And that was one area. We never did paid advertisements on Twitter because we did not want to get, you know, Twitter is much more prickly about you know who they, who they block and who they censor. And so we just stayed away. So we, all of our promotion was heavily Facebook, um, Instagram, TikTok. We tried Snapchat, but Snapchat would not let us do any paid advertisement like YouTube. YouTube would let us do paid advertisement to our short little clips, but no paid advertisement to watch the whole film. And was that
0: immediate? Immediately. How did they know?
1: Yeah, I don't know. And, you know, um, you know, when you sort of set your parameters to try to monetize stuff that is on your channel, a lot of our content on our channel, we're not allowed to monetize. And so, you know, and and they, you know, they kind of have these pat answers around, um, you know, our our paid advertisers wouldn't be interested in this content. So we're not going to let you monetize it. So I think we had like 17,000 hours worth of viewing on our, you know, transmission film, um, which, you know, it's still, you don't make a lot of money when you monetize stuff on your channel, but just the fact that they wouldn't let us monetize the film. So we weren't, we weren't, we're not, clearly we're not in this for the money.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think the people who get involved in this side of the fight on our side tend to be, well, I'm generalizing, but tend to be very honest because there's no money in it. It can actually be a form of career suicide, but the fact that so many people are opposing gender ideology and transing children should say something, especially how so many people from different backgrounds and different sides of the political spectrum are in agreement in opposing the transing of children. It really speaks volumes. But how can people view your documentary and support your work or see the other films that you've made in regards to the surrogacy industry?
1: Yeah, you know all, all of our. I wanted to say all of our films um, used to be on Amazon, but Amazon is slowly pull, pulling our films down too. So we have um, over the summer we've moved every film we've ever produced, and all of you know we have a lot of just interviews and and stuff that we've done um, are on our YouTube channel. So it's the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network. So if they just typed in, even if you just typed in the name of the film, transmission, what's the rush to reassign gender, it would take you to our channel, and then you can watch all of our films there for free. Um, you know our website is CBC-network.org, and that's where you know you can read articles about egg freezing and egg banking and surrogacy, and you know we have tons and tons of resources there on, on the material that we've been you know producing over the last two decades. Uh, but yeah, I think a first first stop just over to the um, YouTube channel is a good place to poke around, and you can watch movies to your heart's content for free. We just said forget you Amazon. <laughs> Thank
0: you so much for talking with me today, Jennifer.
1: It's been fun. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. Nice to finally meet you.
0: Yeah, likewise. Thanks again for tuning in. Jennifer can be found on Twitter at Jennifer L-A-H-L. And myself, I'm on Twitter at WomenReadWomen. Women. Please do go check out her film, Transmission, What's the Rush to Assign Gender? as well as her other films regarding the harms of the surrogacy industry.